and, uh, and with our church. I invite you to open your copy of God's Word to Matthew chapter 6 and verse 25 as we continue working through this uh, portion of Matthew's Gospel, the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, as I initially began preparing uh, for this sermon and reading over the text, uh, one thing was abundantly clear to me, and that is the point of this passage. Um, it, there are many passages in Scripture that are very clear at their first reading, um, maybe none more clear than this one. It was clear at its first reading. It was clear at its fifth reading. Uh, it will be clear, uh, hopefully, after the end of our morning, this t- uh, at the end of our time together this morning. Uh, uh, but even as I was able to see the, the clarity of this passage, the point of the passage, which is so obvious to us, um, I still struggled throughout the week to, to know how to preach it and to preach it well. And so my prayer is that, uh, that, that God has been working on me and through me this week uh, in a way to, uh, to preach this text uh, clearly and, and in a manner that is applicable to all of us. Uh, Let me say this, that if you are here this morning and you don't feel that this text applies to you, you are not reading the same scripture we are, and uh, and you are not present, because uh, this applies to every one of us every single day. Let's read what God's Word has for us. Matthew 6, verses 25 through 34. Jesus says this, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food, and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow, nor reap, nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore... Do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. I think perhaps the best way to introduce this text is just to review briefly where we were last week, and specifically the last verse that we looked at last week, and, and the very last bit of that verse. Matthew chapter six twenty four. 24, uh, the, the very last sentence that is there. Jesus says, you cannot serve... God and money. Verse 25, Therefore, I tell you, and you've probably heard it uh, said before that wherever you see the word therefore in Scripture, you ought to ask, what is the therefore, therefore? And we know that the therefore is there for to call us back to what Jesus has said already. You cannot serve both God and money. Jesus is saying there at the end of verse 24 that our masters are our authorities. Either you will have a, an authority in your life, either God or stuff. 
And our authorities are the the people or the things that we trust and we look to for how to think about our world and how to act within the world in which we live. And as we make the decision to serve either God or money, God or stuff, we will also see the world through the eyes of either God or the eyes of mammon, of money, of the world. Both God and money are providers in a sense. And as we'll see very quickly, Jesus demonstrates that when God is master, he can be trusted to provide all our needs. Yet when money is master, when stuff is master, when the things of this world are the things that we're submitted to, and the things of this world are those that have authority over our life, can only be trusted to provide worry and anxiety. The implied expectation of verse 24, you... uh, You cannot serve both God and money. The implied expectation of Jesus' words is that those who are listening will choose, or at least ought to choose, to serve God, not money. And as a response, to be free from worry, to be free from anxiety. And so then Jesus gives to us, in verses 25 through 34, uh, the same command three times. Do not worry. Do not be anxious. Do not worry. Do not be anxious. And in each instance, he tells us what we are to do instead, how we are to respond to worry, how we are to combat worry, even to overcome worry in this life. And so in verses 25 through 30, he gives us the first of those. He says, don't worry. Instead, trust God's good provision. Trust God's good provision. Don't be anxious about your life, what you'll eat or what you'll drink nor about your body, what you'll put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? The trust that Jesus will talk about, trust in God's good provision, comes as a result of realizing that we are made and meant for more than this physical world and the needs of our physical bodies. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Jesus is saying your life, your body, is more about than just the physical stuff that you see and feel each day. Jesus asks this rhetorical question in verse 25, and in it, he's calling us to the realization that life as we know it, humanity as God has created it, are far more than physical. Different than all other creatures in this world, God has uniquely made man to be the bearer of God's own image, as we read in Genesis chapter 1. And when God breathed life into the first man, that man became a living being, a living soul. And God's word tells us that we're not Uh, the, the mere accumulation of biological adaptations, but that we are purposefully and intentionally, beautifully and wonderfully made in God's image and for His glory as we trust and as we worship Him. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? That's a loaded question. And Jesus answers that question by way of two examples, two illustrations. First, in verse 26, he calls us to consider the birds of the air, how they neither sow seed nor reap at harvest nor store up in barns. Now, in our backyard, we have a a raised uh, garden sort of bed. There's nothing growing in it because I didn't plant anything. But we have several other things as well and a small lawn. And and very often, because uh, we don't have any houses behind us, it's just open field uh, over the wall of our backyard, we often have all kinds of wildlife coming in and frequently birds. Lately, lots of robins, um, sometimes pigeons. Um, Apparently, we even have a bat that lives over our front door that, that my wife just told me about. That's pretty special. 
um, never, never using that door again. But in our backyard, we will, we will often observe the wildlife that are there and, and lots of birds coming through and landing in our yard and picking for worms and, and poking around in our compost pile and, and, and trying to sneak something out of there. Uh, we saw a roadrunner snatch up a lizard the other day. That was really exciting for me. I, I was trying to get Abby excited about it, and I don't know that she did. Um, maybe that's just the boy in me still. It's like, that's nature. Um, but we watched these birds flit through our backyard and, and never once have I seen a bird carry with it a package of seed and a shovel, right? Never once has, has a bird unrolled the hose on, on, in our backyard and watered our garden so that it could eat from its produce. Never, one have I seen, never once have I seen a, a, a bird stricken with starvation and worried about the next day and where it will get its food. And then in verses 28 and 29, Jesus calls us to another example, the example of the lilies of the field. He says, consider the the flowers of the field, consider their splendor. For centuries, flowers have been uh, adored and cultivated and given as gifts. Mothers, you probably received them last Sunday on Mother's Day, given as gifts to compliment and even to comfort people in times of trouble. Why? Because flowers are beautiful. And they're beautiful in their appearance. They're beautiful in scent. They're beautiful in their construction. They remind us that there's, there's beauty. They complement the beauty of people uh, that we love and who mean much to us. And they bring us comfort when, when things are dark around us. We're reminded that there's still beauty and goodness in the world, even in the midst of trouble, when we see flowers. And yet, never once has there been, Jesus says, a flower that grew itself or gave an ounce of concern for how it would be watered, or in what way to arrange their petals for maximum beauty. Have you ever had a conversation about a flower over why it chose the petals that it has? No, you haven't. Why? Because they just do that. And they do it by God's provision. The point that Jesus is going on to make here with both the evidence of the birds and the evidence of the flowers of the field, that it is God who provides for the greatest needs of both. Food for the birds, covering, uh, beautiful clothing for the lilies of the field. But as people, as humans, as those who God has made in His own image and made to bear His image in this world, our greatest needs are not so pithy, they're not so small, they're not so pointless as food and clothing. Even our needs for food and clothing, though they are basic and essential to this physical life, are but shadows of far weightier spiritual needs. Our need for nourishment, our need for food is but a reminder of our need for true spiritual food that comes by God's own word. God gave manna and quail to the Israelites in the wilderness. Just enough for each day, you'll recall, that they might not uh, depend, that they might not store up for themselves each, uh, more and more each day for the following days, but that they might know that man cannot live on bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Same words Jesus proclaimed to rebuke Satan while he was fasting in the wilderness for 40 days. In Matthew 4, the, the devil approaches him and, and says, If you are the Son of God, turn these rocks into bread. And Jesus combats Satan's temptation by saying, Man cannot live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Physical hunger. Our, our bellies, when they ache, are, are but Reminders of our need for true food, for spiritual food, for food that does not lead to temporary physical life, but food that leads to eternal life. 
And so Jesus says in John chapter 6, verses 53 and 54, Truly I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink His blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Now we know that Jesus is not talking about literally eating his body and drinking his blood. He's not talking about practicing cannibalism on his own body, right? But instead he's saying that eternal life comes only through the soul-saving knowledge and trust of Jesus himself, who is, as John tells us in his gospel, the incarnate word of God. Already, this morning's oatmeal is failing you, okay? And, and in about 30 minutes, it will really be failing you, okay? But God is calling you this morning to be satisfied in something greater. Not to be satisfied with a full belly, but to be satisfied with a full soul. And the only way your soul can be filled and your soul can be satisfied is in God, is in Christ. God wants to satisfy you today, not for an hour, not for a day, but for an eternity. Jesus tells us that the lilies of the field are dressed more splendidly than even King Solomon in all of his wealth. And that the same God who clothed the lilies this way, the lilies that are here today and tomorrow are burned up in the oven, that same God that clothed them will all the more clothe us. And so clothing, though it keeps us warm and gives us a sense of security, points us to a day when we who are in Christ will be clothed, not in in t-shirts and denim jeans and in ball caps, not even in fancy suits and designer gowns. We see the kinds of clothing that God has prepared for us in Scripture. It's a different kind of clothing. It's not physical, but it's spiritual. It's not temporary, but it's eternal. Paul writes to young Timothy in 2 Timothy 4, chapter 8, that there is a crown of righteousness ready to be placed on the head of each one who has trusted in Jesus and who is eagerly awaiting his second coming. James tells the church that our present suffering and trials, when endured with steadfastness in Christ, will earn for us the crown of life, which is promised by God to all who love him. In the revelation of Jesus to John, in Revelation chapter 7, verse 9, we see in heaven, as John writes, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. In verse 30, Jesus rebukes those who hear him Hear him say, don't worry about food, don't worry about clothing. Your father will provide those. He provides for the least of creation. He'll provide also for you. Jesus rebukes them who are hearing this for trusting too little in God. For trusting too little to see that life is more than eating and drinking. And that our bodies are so much more than what clothes them. Church, God has created you for so much more than these things. And he wants so much more for you than these things. To meet your need for real, abundant, eternal life, God has sent his own son, who is the bread of life, to be broken for us, that we, in trusting him, would have real life. And the sinless son of God, who was stripped naked, covered in a purple robe and crowned with thorns, was nailed to a cross for our sins, so that by faith in him alone, we might one day receive not a crown of thorns, but the crown of life. And that our sinfulness will be removed and will be clothed in Christ's righteousness. 
And so when we worry about food and we worry about clothing, well, at the same time, we're observing in nature how God cares for birds and for flowers, for these lesser parts of creation. We show that we trust Him and His Word too little. We trust too little in the God who provides all things. If God can be trusted to provide for us salvation from sin and eternal life with Him, the most important things... How much more can he be trusted with the little things like food and clothing? Charles Spurgeon, the great British Baptist preacher, has said that the fruit of worry is to take a telescope and breathing on it with the hot breath of our anxiety and putting it to our eye, we say that we cannot see anything but clouds. Of course we cannot, and we never shall while we breathe upon it. Do not then cloud your view and your understanding of the greatness of God's ultimate provision, the greatness of God's good provision with worry for little things like food and clothing. I don't want you to think that I'm, I'm trying to minimize those physical needs. They are important. We all know what it's like to be hungry. We all know what it's like to be poorly clothed or, or clothed inappropriately for the weather or what that might be. And I'm not trying to minimize those things. And I'm not trying to say that those aren't real issues and those aren't real causes for concern. But what I am saying is that God has already met for you a greater need. And God can be trusted to meet for you that greater need. And if he can be trusted to meet the greatest need, then what have we to worry about when it comes to these smaller things? Don't worry. Trust God's good provision. In verses 31 and 33, Jesus goes on to give us that same command a second time, but with a different illustration, a different application. He says, don't worry. Instead, seek God's good kingdom. Here, the second time Jesus commands us not to worry, he reiterates these worrisome questions, right? What shall we eat? What shall we drink? What shall we wear? And then he says, don't do this. Don't worry about these things. Don't ask these questions. Don't let this be a a constant refrain in your life because the Gentiles seek after all these things. But you should not worry. You shouldn't seek these things because your Heavenly Father already knows that you need them. So what is Jesus saying? Why this comparison with the Gentiles? Well, in the context of the Sermon on the Mount, the Gentiles that Jesus is referring to are are equated with, are assumed to be, all those pagan peoples in the world who neither know nor trust God and are certainly not looking for His Messiah and the coming of His kingdom. Gentiles don't serve the one true God. They serve false gods and idols which are nothing but skillfully carved statues of wood and stone and metal. But even in the minds of Gentiles who served these, quote, gods, there was no conception of a good, gracious, loving God. No, all of their gods that were represented in these idols were mischievous, crafty, especially moody sorts of beings. They would send down rewards and calamity, disaster upon mankind on a whim. Not because anybody deserved anything, but just because the gods woke up in that sort of mood. That's what the Gentiles thought. And the gods of the Gentiles could not be trusted, nor were they trusted even by the people who worshipped them. Sacrifices were made to these gods to keep them from causing trouble for humans. And so when you have a god that you cannot trust... And a God who is not concerned with you, the only person you have to trust is yourself. And naturally, things like food and clothing become very real concerns, especially with the possibility that they may be taken on a whim by some mischievous God tomorrow. 
Rather than seeking these things like the pagans do, Jesus says, he says, fill your worrying hours with something else. Because your heavenly Father, who can be trusted, knows that you need those smaller things. Since your heavenly Father knows you need these things, and since your heavenly Father can be trusted to give you these things, to provide these good things to you in His good wisdom and in His good will, don't seek after the little things. Seek something better. Seek something bigger. Seek something more lasting, more eternal. And while it's natural for Gentiles, for pagans, for non-believers, to seek after food and clothing, for personal security, the follower of Jesus is to seek God's kingdom and His righteousness, Jesus says. So how then do we do that? How do we seek God's kingdom? Where is that kingdom? Where do we find it? Very simply, the kingdom is wherever the king is. Right? So if you want to seek the kingdom of God, seek the king. Be with the king. Place your full faith and trust in the king. Serve the king. And all of Matthew, all of his gospel to this point and even moving forward is to prove to his reader, to prove to the one that is reading what he has written, that Jesus is that king. That Jesus is the Messiah, the promised son of David, who will come to rescue his people from their sins. Seek first the kingdom of God, Jesus says, and his righteousness as well. What then is God's righteousness? God's righteousness is the character of those who inhabit his kingdom. In God's kingdom, it is the character of the king that defines the kingdom, right? And the king is a righteous king. And so the character of the kingdom is righteousness. And the character of kingdom citizens ought to also be righteousness. Not just any kind of righteousness, but perfect righteousness. Righteousness is the the state of being right with God, of having nothing between you and God. The problem inherent in this is that we all have something between us and God, do we not? God, the all-powerful King and Creator of the universe, is perfect, and yet we are not. We are imperfect. We are sinful. The very nature of sin is the opposite of seeking righteousness. To sin is to say to God, I know better than you, O King. I can do this on my own, Your Majesty. No need to help me here. We are by our very nature, our sinful nature, people who do not seek righteousness, people who cannot on our own seek righteousness. But Jesus says, do it. He says, do it all the same. Jesus is commanding us to combat our worry and anxiety by doing something that's impossible for us to do as sinners. Thanks, Jesus. (laughs) To seek God's righteousness, though, we we have to first be made right with God. We cannot seek God's righteousness. We cannot seek, we cannot emulate God's perfect, righteous character unless we are first right with Him and in fellowship with Him. And that happens only through knowing and trusting the King who Himself has paid the penalty for our treason against Him. Jesus has said, seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. And the good news is, even though He's asking us to do an impossible thing on our own, He has, by His own blood, paid the penalty for us to be able to do that which is impossible. He has made possible that which previously was not. And so in Romans 5, 6 through 11, Paul can say with confidence, For while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, still treasonous traitors to the king, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we have been justified by His blood, much more shall we be saved by Him from the wrath of God. 
For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. And more than that, Paul says, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation, righteousness with the king, right standing with the king, right relationship with the God and the creator of all things. God is not a God who maintains order in his kingdom through chaos. God is not a God who maintains order in his kingdom by keeping things from his subjects, by depriving things from the citizens of his kingdom. On the contrary, God brings order to the chaos of our sin, not by withholding things from us, not by making us dependent upon him for little things, but by extending his own son to die in our place and to be raised from the dead so that we might have peace with our creator. God keeps order in his kingdom by giving freely to his citizens that which they need the most. Worry is not a kingdom characteristic. Interestingly enough, last week I was talking with a a dear sister of ours who uh, has had some uh, health things come up recently. And she had some follow-up appointments coming up with doctors. And I asked how that was going. And she said that the doctors didn't seem too concerned. Everything seemed to be okay. Uh, That it was just sort of routine, kind of -of run-of-the-mill stuff. And I said, well, if you're not worried, I'm not worried. And she said, you better not because that's a sin. (laughs) And brothers and sisters, she's right. My God, in, in, that, in that short moment, I was so convicted of even just the flippant use of this word worry, right? But worry is not a kingdom characteristic. It's not what citizens of the king, what followers of Jesus mark their lives by. Because God in his goodness has provided for our greatest need in Christ Jesus. As citizens of his kingdom, we are freed to live with redeemed priorities and redeemed perspective. As citizens of Christ's kingdom, food and drink and clothing are not most important, but knowing the king and making him known are. So students, high schoolers, those of you who have recently graduated this last week or are looking forward to that, worrying about what college you'll get into or if you'll even go to college or what college you'll go to is not worth your time. Don't waste your time worrying about those things. Instead, spend your time being satisfied in Jesus and that you are a child of the King. That is worth your time. Parents, of which I am one, worrying about your children's success in life and whether they're involved in enough extracurricular activities today for the good of tomorrow is not worth your time. But showing them Christ is. Senior adults, Don't waste this chapter of your life in anxiety over what old age and death may bring. But invest in leaving a legacy of a life lived in full trust in Jesus, regardless of your circumstances. This this one's hard. To those of you in our body who are ill, who are sick, whose bodies are racked with disease, with cancer. I feel for you. And this is the hardest one that I've had to work on this week. How does this command of Jesus to not worry apply to those that are really suffering? To those of you in our body who are ill, do not look at your illness as a cause for concern. You may not, Christ commands you not to. Rather, 
Endure it with faith that the great physician has already brought your dead soul to life through faith in Jesus. Endure your illness. Endure your sickness. Cling to Christ in the midst of suffering and cancer and impending death. Because Jesus, the great physician, has already brought your dead soul to life. And there's joy in that. I'm not done. To the wealthy among us. To the wealthy among us. To those whom God has blessed. To those whom God has has blessed abundantly with things, with money, with resources. And in the global perspective, really, that's all of us. But to the wealthy among us, do not squander God's blessing by hoarding it for yourself. Worried about tomorrow's stock report. Rather, in full faith and trust in the King who provides all things, give generously to those who are without. That you might be an agent of God's good provision in their life, even as God has already generously given His Son to you. For the poor person, Oh, gosh, the ill, that was tough. The poor person, this one's tough, too. We have people in our body that have real financial needs. And I, and I, and I don't want to pretend that we don't. So here, I hope you see my heart in this. Hear my heart in this. But for the poor person struggling to make ends meet each day, living paycheck to paycheck, worried about where tomorrow's food might actually come from, do not lose sleep tonight over the uncertainties of tomorrow. But rather be reminded that while your wallet may be slim, your soul in Christ is made full. For Jesus, though he was rich, for your sake became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich, Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 8, 9. Brother pastors, Do not worry, do not be anxious about what the Lord has for you in your ministry. Whether there are enough people, whether tithes are are enough that week, whether the building is impressive to the community. Brother pastors, do not lose sleep over these things. Do not worry about these things because Christ has commanded us not to seek those things, but to seek His kingdom and His righteousness. And it is not worth our service to the king to waste our time worrying about such pithy things as whether we have enough seats for everyone to sit in or whether our building looks as good as the one down the road. We are to worry about the state of people's souls and whether or not they have the gospel and have Christ, the one who meets their greatest need. I'm not done. To the unbeliever, and then I'm done. To you who's here today who's not a a follower of Jesus, who has not trusted Christ for your salvation. The person who who is racked with anxiety and worry over what you do not know and cannot prepare for. Take heart today. Be encouraged today. Know today that God who has created you stands to remove your worry. You will worry and you will be anxious every day of your life if you never know the God who perfectly provides all things. Know this to my non-Christian friend. Hear this. God has created you for far more than stuff. He has created you to know Him. And the only way to know Him is through turning from your sin, turning from yourself, no longer being self-reliant, 
And instead, relying, trusting fully in Jesus, the Son of God, born of a virgin, who lived a perfect, sinless life that you did not live, that I did not live, and then died in your place and was raised from the dead so you can be right with the God who created you, so that you can be free from worry today. Don't worry. Seek God's good kingdom. Finally, in verse 34, Jesus gives his last command, and in it he says, Don't worry. In response, heed God's good wisdom. He says, therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. The third time that Jesus here commands his followers not to be anxious, he follows it with words of divine wisdom that are so simple and yet so clear and so true. Don't be anxious about tomorrow. Tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. These don't necessarily sound like words that we might hear out of the mouth of of Jesus. But let's look briefly at what I think Jesus means here, what he is saying. First, he does not mean to say that tomorrow can actually worry for itself, as though tomorrow were a thing or a person that could even do such a thing. What he means is that since tomorrow is not here yet, it's foolish to worry about it. What can you do today to change tomorrow? Can you even be certain That the things that trouble you today will still trouble you tomorrow. And how do you know that the things you are anticipating for tomorrow will actually even happen? The truth is that there is only one person who knows what tomorrow will bring. Who knows what tomorrow has in store. And it's not you and it's not me. And Jesus reminds us of that. The only person who knows precisely what tomorrow will bring is God himself. Only he knows all things. Only he knows all days. And only he knows the events of the future. Now, we can plan for tomorrow. We can prepare for tomorrow. We can work toward tomorrow and look ahead to tomorrow. These are not bad things. These are not wrong things. These are not sinful things. But we must not worry about tomorrow. How often do we spend countless hours and energy planning and preparing and worrying about what we think will happen only for all those plans to change at a moment's notice due to something we didn't see, due to unforeseen events taking place? All good boxers, all good fighters spend months training for a fight that will happen just once on a scheduled day in the future. Their technique is honed. Their footwork is refined in those days. They work on their speed and agility. All of these things are increased and improved upon as the boxer prepares his body for this fight. Old films of fights from his opponent are poured over as a game plan is put together. All of this and more is done and planned in pursuit of victory on the day of that fight. I mean, even as a great boxer, Mike Tyson once said, everyone's got a plan until they get punched in the face. (laughs) Now, there are positive and negative sides to what Jesus is saying about not worrying about tomorrow. Mike Tyson points to the negative, right? We can worry and plan for what we think will go well in our favor, only to be surprised by things going poorly, only to be punched in the face by Mike Tyson. But on the other hand, on the positive side of things, we can worry and anxiously wring our hands about the events of tomorrow, only for tomorrow to come and bring none of the trouble with it that we were so worriedly anticipating. So worry... Anxiety, in light of God's wisdom, in light of God's knowledge, is foolishness. It's silly. 
And secondly, Jesus goes on to say that, that it is foolish to worry about tomorrow because, as he says, sufficient for the day is its own trouble. What Jesus is saying here is that God in his wisdom has allotted and has allowed only what he intends for each day. And as followers of Jesus, living in a broken and sinful world, we will face trouble each day. We will. And Jesus says, today's trouble is enough for you to deal with. Tomorrow, we'll have trouble. Okay? But we cannot do anything about that trouble today. And as today becomes tomorrow, the troubles of today will become the troubles of yesterday, which will have passed in time behind us and out of our ability to do anything about anyway. This is why in the Lord's Prayer, Jesus instructs His disciples to pray to God, to ask Him to give us this day our daily bread. Because yesterday's bread has already been eaten. And we know not yet if we should need bread tomorrow. So then be present this day. Seek God's kingdom and God's character in the face of today's trouble. And don't be disobedient to follow Christ by forsaking His kingdom and His righteousness today for the unknown troubles of tomorrow. Rather, instead, knowing that God will provide for you according to His good will, to His good purpose, to His good wisdom. Seeking God's kingdom, seeking His righteousness in Christ, heed His good wisdom. And leave the troubles of tomorrow for tomorrow. I, I'm a worrier. And, and, and I'm, I'm a, I, I get stressed out easily. And, and my wife will, will attest to that. And, um, and she'll downplay it a little bit because she loves me and she cares about me. But the truth is I worry a lot. And I get stressed out over stupid stuff a lot. And this passage this week has gone up me one side and down the other. As I have held it up as a mirror to my life. And as I have read Christ's commands each, each of the three times, several times throughout the week. Don't worry. Don't be anxious. Don't worry. Don't be anxious. Your good Father knows what is best for you. He has met your greatest need in Christ. And He desires for you to seek His kingdom. To seek His righteousness. And in response to, to give you all that you need for each day. Not worrying about yesterday. Not worrying about tomorrow. But for each day. And every day this week, God has been calling me to trust Him more. To trust His good provision. To seek His good kingdom. To heed His good wisdom. Because I want to provide for myself. And I want to build my own kingdom. And I want to think myself wise. But in reality, I can do very little for myself. In reality, my kingdom is nothing. And in reality, I am a fool if I think that I can do any of those things for myself. If God, who can be trusted to meet our greatest need in Christ Jesus, if He, if he in our lives cannot be trusted to, to provide for the smaller things like food and clothing for the needs of the day, how little does that say about our faith in Him? This is my, my question to all of us. Do we trust God that much? Do we trust Him so much as to not worry about tomorrow? 
as to not even use language like I'm worried about or I worry of or I'm anxious about these sorts of things. Because even those, even the words that we speak, even though we might not necessarily mean them, even the words that we speak, proclaim, communicate something about the state of our hearts. And if we as believers in this world have the same worries, the same anxieties, the same unrighteous concerns as the rest of the world that doesn't trust God, what does that say about the God that we serve? Rather, and I know this is hard for many of us, rather, even in the face of adversity, in the face of difficulty, even maybe with the threat of not having enough for today, trust in God. Trust His Son. And for the unbeliever that's here today, I promise you, you will be worried every day of your life. You'll be concerned every day of your life until you know the God that has met your greatest need in Christ Jesus. In just a moment, Danny's going to lead us uh, in a song of response. And the song that he's going to lead us in is called Give Me Faith. Give me faith to trust what you say. That your love is that you are good and that your love is great. And, and it's my desire that when we all stand and we sing this song together, that we not just sing it because the, the words that are on the screen and because Danny's leading us, but that we sing this song as believers in Jesus, those of us who are trusting in Christ, that we would pray as we sing, God, give me faith. Give me faith today to trust you for the things that you'll provide for today. And God, give me faith to trust you for tomorrow because you're good and you've already met the thing that I need most, which is a right relationship with you, salvation from my sins, eternal life in your presence after this, this physical life passes away. And for the unbeliever, it's my prayer that today, if you've sung these words before, that today as you sing them, you might sing them for the first time, really meaning it. Really praying that God would give you faith. And, and not first to trust Him for the stuff of today, but that God would first give you faith to trust in His Son, who has so perfectly met our need for salvation. Don't leave today without knowing that God. Don't leave today worried about tomorrow or worried about the events of this afternoon or whatever. But leave today knowing that you are secure with your Heavenly Father who has created you and who loves you. As Danny leads us and as we stand and sing, let this be your prayer. Let this be a true response of worship. Asking God to give us faith, greater trust, that He is who He says He is, that He will do what He says He will do, and that we have no need, no place for worry or for anxiety in our lives as we live as citizens of our good King who gave Himself for us. Let's pray.